Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. It's the Son of a Butch podcast. We come to you every Wednesday. This week's guest, um, I had a chance to sit down and talk to this guy when I was down in Australia, Jonah Oliver. He is Cam Smith's performance coach, but um, met him um, just in the locker room and got talking to him about you know his role with Cam and everything. But um, from the minute I started talking to Jonah, I mean, it's just he was definitely somebody I wanted to have on the podcast. Um, been doing this for a little over about a year, year and a half now, and I've got to say this was probably. Um, the podcast that I got the most out of. Um, I could have talked to Jonah for a couple of hours. He talks about dealing with pressure, talks about performance, but just so many good takeaways that if you're a competitive golfer or a non-competitive golfer, if you're just trying to improve your handicap, um, definitely some stuff that I think that everybody um, that's trying to improve their game and trying to improve the way they perform on the golf course. Um, this is a good one. Um, you're going to want to take notes. And uh, like I said, definitely one that I enjoyed um, listening to and one that I got a lot out of. So take a listen to Jonah Oliver. I definitely think you will enjoy it. All right. So Jonah, uh, we got a chance to meet last uh Last week in Australia, and um, you know, and just in talking to you and the work that you've done um, with Cam Smith as his performance coach, I just thought it would be fascinating to kind of pick your your brain. First of all, when 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 everybody listening hears a performance coach, to you, what does that mean, and and how would you define that? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'm a sports psychologist, so I'll define it firstly. So, so psychologist by training, and I, I I say that just for clarification. There's a lot of people out there who are mental skills coaches, performance coaches, mindset coaches. Um, I'm a psychologist. I went to university, did a bunch of you know training, registered with the medical board. So you know everything that I do is based in evidence. But so what would I- that be the difference between you know because obviously there are the golf has been you know the main one in golf historically was a guy like Bob Rotella, yep. you know where yep. breathing techniques and stuff like that. Whereas your background is more a doctor background, a clinical background, and that's different than just someone saying, hey, work on your pre-shot routine, work on, you know, focus, because it's, it, it's much more involved in what you do with the training that you've got. Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, there's a whole bunch of people out there doing great work, regardless of their background. You know, some people just have a natural intuition. Um, what, what separates maybe a, a sports psychologist from others is that we're medically, ethically, bound by only evidence-based interventions. So it's like going seeing a doctor 
they're not going to say, I think this is a good medicine. I made it up in my garage. They're, this is based upon, you know, science and, 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 and evidence. So that's probably the biggest distinguishing factor is that whatever I do, I've come from a body of science. The, to, your, to your first question, though, what do I do for a living? I help people focus on the right thing at the right time. I can't make you more talented. I can't make you, you know, anything more than what's, you know, what, what God put in. <laughs> but, you know, most of the time clients come to me and they're like, Jonah, I can, I can hit a ball. I can drive a racing car. I can, you know, I can train well when I'm in the, in the octagon sparring, whatever the sport is. But then they want to do it when it matters. And they might notice there's a change in their performance when pressure shows up or outcome shows up. So, you know, what do I do? I help people focus on the right thing at the right time. And one of the things that I'm always talking to all of the players I work with, especially the ones trying to play, is this concept of technique versus execution. And I think regard and, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted you to come on and talk, and I find it fascinating to talk to people about you, is your, your golf round isn't specifically golf and we were talking before we started that i think in the last 15 years um and i think really when the guys at the titleist performance institute greg and dave rose um are greg rose and dave phillips when they got together and said okay we're going to bring in all of these people to try and talk about golf we're going to bring in people from the medical side from the physical side and then from the golf side and get all of these people kind of talking and being on the same page i think really since the early 2000s I've spent more time talking to people that aren't necessarily golf-specific people or their background isn't 100% golf. And so you mentioned other sports. One of the things I think that's changed, and I'd love to get your input on this, golf has changed and evolved to where I think it's getting out of the golf-specific realm. Because when I was growing up, my dad was always a golf, you know, a coach, gave lessons, but golf wasn't cool. It wasn't seen as a sport. It was just go out, Ben Hogan, find it in the dirt. Um, You know, there's great stories um, about people that just think all of this is just nonsense. Um, You know, I know some of the trainers at the Ryder Cup I'm at Glen Eagles when Tom Watson was the captain. Their players were trying to get credentials for their for their coaches, for their trainers and stuff. And Tom Watson coming from an old school, you don't need any of that, right? You don't need any of that stuff. It's just golf and we dig it out of the dirt. How do you th- see golf has evolved over the last maybe 15 to 20 years? And where do you see that in the realm of other sports that you deal with? From racing drivers, from other, you know, cricketers from Aussie rules and then the work that you do with Cam Smith? Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, Well, interestingly enough, I think golf is relatively mature with examining the side of psychology because I think even before we had psychologists working with all tour players like I do, the average (laughs) the average golfer out there certainly knew that their head at times got in their way. Okay, so I think there was quite a, a, you know, I look at tennis, I look at, you know, motorsport, I look at golf, they're relatively mature in having people like myself around the athletes and the teams. But to your point, um, coming in as just a, a generalist, I work across all professional sports, multiple, I've gone to multiple Olympics and worked in, in all different sectors of, of pro sport, is that golf does still have a tendency to drink from a pretty small um, fish tank, and sometimes that that water can get a bit dirty, right? <laughs> um, so, what do, what do people like myself bring in? We bring in the naive question, the informed yet naive question. What I mean by that is, why are you doing that? Yeah. 
the why. What like give me the, oh because you did it before because somebody else did it like well have you thought about this or this is what we do in football or this is what we do in motorsport or this is what we do in the UFC or and all of a sudden you see people's brains being much more open and oh interesting so I'm seeing a, a huge appetite now in in golf at the pointy end for yeah being more open to learning from other sports and realizing that just because we've done it this way doesn't mean we need to continue to do it that way. If you had to define what pressure is, mm. what is pressure? Because we hear that so much. And I remember when Brooks, I, when I was working with Brooks um, and he was on his kind of historic major championship run, we were sitting at the house at um, Beth Page Black when he won his fourth major run. I think it was like the fourth major he'd won out of like eight or nine that he played in. And then people were like, okay, he's cracked the code, right? He's figured out how. We were sitting, we were having dinner. It was, I think it was Saturday night and Brandel Chambly was on Golf Channel. And he was like, you know, he's going to be under a lot of pressure, you know, tomorrow and everything. And, and I'll never forget this. Brooks just looked up at me and he goes, what these people don't realize is the only person or the only thing that can make me feel pressure is me, right? It, it's not something that's real. You have to take it in and go, okay, I'm going to be affected by it. And he said, if you choose not to be affected by it, the pressure doesn't bother you. So in your mind, we hear so much about what pressure in sports, but what to you is that? Yeah, well, you, you've touched upon a lot of it. It's, it's very much an interpretation of a threat, perceived or real. Um, there's, there is real threat. Like we can't deny hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. So if we see a deadly snake on the floor, our brain is going to have a reaction to it. Now, if I'm a professional snake catcher, it's going to be a different reaction than you or I. But interestingly enough, that professional snake catcher will still have an elevated heart rate, okay, and some thoughts of death, dying, and staying alive. But they just don't give that much power because they're highly competent. They know what they're going to do. They've done it before. So they can focus on catching that deadly snake, whereas you and I are running out the door, right? Or frozen or, or whatever, <laughs> right? But people misinterpret. They see that snake catcher walking in, competently grabbing the snake from behind the head. And they go, wow, that guy was so calm and confident. He doesn't even get scared by scary deadly snakes. The biggest mythology in sports psychology that great athletes don't feel pressure or nerves. So there is an element that we all will respond to an external and an intrinsic, you know, threat or pressure or context. It's just that our relationship to it is very individual. That's why I've got I've got football players who will play in front of a stadium of 120,000 people and they're more nervous because their girlfriend is bringing their friends along and they don't want to play poorly to make her feel embarrassed. Sounds a bit weird. Big, tough, meaty Aussie footballer who's actually worried about his girlfriend's impression management in front of her friends. And that's what making, is making him more nervous than the 120,000 people and winning and losing a footy match, right? Crazy. So it can be very, very personal what pressure is. Plus, we know that through exposure, we can develop um, a different relationship to it. And that's almost what I spend my life doing is debunking the mythology of pressure. So how do you go about doing that? And is it individual for each specific player? Because obviously I'm fascinated with the players that I work with. They they run the gamut of personalities, yep. right? Currently I work with Dustin Johnson, who is so laid back, yep. so chilled out. But DJ, nobody realizes he's probably the most positive 
person I, I know. And he's kind of the living embodiment of what everybody says you should do in sports, but specifically golf. One shot at a time. You can't control the past. You can't control the future. And then one of my favorite people to work with, who's probably the most negative human being I've ever met, Pat Perez, never thinks he's good enough, always thinks it's, it's, it's not permanent. He always thinks he's going to lose it. So how much of how players are affected by pressure come from their own background and their own way of dealing with everything that's happened in their life. Because I think the great ones, in my opinion, are the they, they're the compartmentalizers. They're the ones that can put all of these things in boxes at the right time. It doesn't necessarily mean they're probably not dealing with it. They're just able to go, okay, I'm just not going to let it affect me at this time. But the background of, of, of individual athletes that we are as golfers, how much does that affect how they handle pressure situations? Yeah, complex question, a good one. And there's a, there's a few layers to that. So let's just slow down and walk through you know, a few things at, a, at one point at a time. So genetics influences our temperament. So we used to think that temperament was how we were, how we grew up, and you know the, the the social world we we were exposed to. But we actually know that that temperament is actually genetically um, nature pre- versus nurture. Correct, right? That's why you can have two children raised in the same family, and they're really different in terms of their temperament. Um, so there's a bit of genetics. There's epigenetics, which is a whole other thing. If people are interested in your podcast, Google some epigenetics. You'll be down a rabbit hole for a while. <laughs> but you know whether your grandfather was a smoker influences your genes right now. Like it's pretty amazing. Um, so let's just, yeah. So firstly, we have different um, temperament. Then we have the world we are exposed to. So how we learn our relationship to pressure. And then we have personality as well. So they're all three intertwine. So the biggest thing that we, we, we can work with, though, is our relationship with pressure. And you can be, you know, a pervasive warrior. You can be perfectionistic. You can be highly strung, whatever terminology you want to use. Mm-hmm. You can be lackadaisical and cool as a cucumber, as we say in Australia, and, you know, really chilled out. But you can still, both of those can be major winners, world number one, and dominate for a very long time. Okay, so this idea that there's a one personality or one temperament or one psychological makeup that defines a champion is absolute mythology. You don't see any correlation you don't see any traits that are um that you see on a regular basis yes. with great champions yes, I do. and the way they deal with pressure yes i do how they deal with it so you can be a little bit more highly strung and just know that's part of who you are and the techniques that i train my athletes in is very much that how do i make room for the noise that will inherently show up when pressure comes and don't let it impact my performance. So it's not how worried we get, it's whether we can still play the shot in that moment. If I get caught up in my anxiety story and I start steering it, deselling, leaving putt short, then I'm getting affected by my, you know, interpretation of pressure. Whereas if I'm able to unhook from it, in psychology we call it diffused, diffusion. It's I'm nervous, but I'm able to see it as just thoughts and feelings, and I'm able to pick a target and commit to my normal swing, and therefore I hit the shot whilst having nerves. Now, the commentators on TV will say, look how calm and confident he is. No, what they're saying is look how competent he is or her. So it's the ability to still play the right shot irrespective of what story's showing up. 
some people because of their experience, their background, their temperament, their personality, how important this is, whatever, will have a different volume or story in their brain about this shot. Okay, They'll have more negative thoughts or anxious thoughts, whatever labels we want to give them. I don't even give them labels. I just call them thoughts. You know, because even positive thoughts can distract us. So my training is how do I take an athlete who might get a bit of noise and learn to just make room for it so that then behaviorally they're consistent. And when you say, what is the overlapping Venn diagram between the extrovert, the introvert, the worrier, the perfectionist, the 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 stud who just loves the, the spotlight, it's all of those who seem to consistently perform well don't give the noise in their brain too much power. Rather, they come back to the behavioral output that's required in this moment. So they're very behaviorist. One thing psychologists have got wrong, and I read a lot of golf journals and see a lot of people writing articles on the psychology of golf, and they seem to be obsessed with athletes' thoughts and feelings. If you actually look at the history of psychology, we're behaviorists. We studied rats eating pellets to touch buttons and pigeons in boxes, you know, Skinner and Pavlov with dogs, and we're behaviorists. And if you actually look at what is what is golf- the pleasure reflex to where if you give right. rats something, they'll just keep hitting the pleasure button. Literally, yeah. right? What is sport? I've, I've never been to the Olympics where they've handed out a gold medal and said, hey, this is for you because you had the most positive self-talk. <laughs> right? right. Like, hey, you're the most confident. Yep. Here's, here's, a, here's a green jacket. Here's the winner. Like, it's, it's for what you do. Yeah. And in golf, is- if it was a style competition and a technique competition, right. which everyone thinks it is, right. Adam Scott, Scotty and Nellie Corder would win. They'd be the judge's favorite because they have the best looking technical Correct. golf swings. Correct. Correct. So we've got to remember that our job, all of us, coaches, psychologists, you know, ever is just to help that animal <laughs> or humans, that animal behave in a certain way. My job is to help them behave consistently because normally what I see in training is pretty damn good. It's can we now then transfer that into tournament play and not change? Right. How much you don't change. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right don't miss it mark your calendars and be the first to see it march 20th at 7 p.m eastern only on iHeartRadio's youtube channel save the date at new-qx80.com 2025 qx80 coming this summer okay quick math the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep obvious But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The famous quote, and I think it was Roger Federer, pressure is a privilege. Do you believe that? Yeah, I do. So funnily enough, I'm doing a few talks around the world at the moment with people from the military, people in the medical sectors, and and. They, the, the people often hire us and bring us in. And I actually challenge my fellows on the stage. And I say, I, I, I think we've got to be really careful here. If I'm in the med, and I do a lot of work, just so you know, with surgeons. So how do they perform well and focus when there's you know sirens going off and the, the client's bleeding out or what have you. And for them, when there's pressure, it normally means something's wrong. Okay? I've never thought about that in the medical world. A pilot would be the same. Pilot. They only feel pressure when something is going wrong. Correct. Same as in the military. We've planned this assault down a valley, doing what have you, and then, okay, naturally... And because it's surgeons, pilots, military, because everything is so systematically planned out, right. it should go according to plan. Yeah. And when it doesn't, that's when the pressure comes. Correct, correct. I mean, the military are very good at preparing for the unexpected. They do a good job of that. But yes, the, the point I was trying to make was... This, this 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 tokenistic line of pressure is a privilege, I actually think really only holds up in sport. You know, sometimes pressure in sport is challenging because you're on the cut line or your swing's broken down a little bit. So you might say, yeah, look, I had a fair bit of pressure and it was due to adversity. But traditionally, it's I've made the Olympic final. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm in the lead group. I'm, I've got my chance to win my first major. I, you know, so yeah, I do believe that often the better we do in sport... We, we feel the pressure and we think it's a negative thing. We don't like it. We want to, we wanna, you know, we want to have it both ways. And I always say it's the price of entry. It's the price of entry. You want to win that green jacket? Yes, I do. Then you're not going to sleep well tonight and you're going to wake up and not want to eat your breakfast and you're going to have a few extra trips to the toilet and you're going to have a bit of noise in the brain. We know enough about neuroscience to know you're going to have some anticipatory anxiety because you know why? You worry about things you care about. And you've got this wonderful opportunity to go out there and, and, and get after something you care about. But you know what? There might be some you know, pressure that shows up with that. So instead of viewing it as this um, aversive thing that I wish or hope it doesn't come, it's rather, let's dance. The better I do, the louder you get. My relationship to you is, you know, you're like my shadow. You're going to follow me around, so you might as well come for the journey. Let's go. Your work with Cam Smith, um, how did you come on Cam's team? Why do you think you're on Cam's team? And what effect do you think that you've helped him with? Yeah, sure. So I joined Cam's team about five years ago. He was about 65 in the world at the time. Um, I was working previously with um, Grant Field, you know, Cam's coach, uh, and, you know, he knew of some of the work I'd done with some of his other players and and had some good outcomes there. So he'd probably planted the seed in the background, and then we met at 
at Port Rush actually had our first sort of went out for dinner and got to know each other and then we started working not long after that and then yeah it's been a good little journey um, he's still the coolest going. kid right right I mean he's so much fun to be around and I don't I, I don't claim to know him well I'm I'm a work friend I see him I yep. talk to him yep. but he seems to be very much in the DJ mode of just laid back chilled out is he like that on the golf course? Does his, my, my, my point being, does his personality off the golf course match his personality on the golf course and the way that he deals with all of the stuff that goes with trying to win big tournaments and winning major championships? Yeah, a question I get often. Um, I think people need to not mistake having a mullet and laid back cool look yeah jovial personality <laughs> and perspective right like the one thing cam does so well is he's so quick to refresh meaning if he's not played well he'll be annoyed for a little bit hit the range fix up whatever he's working on and then we're not talking golf we're talking fishing and cars and and he can switch off right he, he it's because you know why because he doesn't define himself as a golfer he's cam and as a psychologist i take that really deeply and and personally in that my job is to help the human and a lot of that is reminding them that they're a whole human that happens to have a job called golf. And when you're at work, you take it seriously, you do it damn well. But when it's done, you're allowed to go and nurture the other domains of your life. He's still a son, a, a brother, you know, he's, he's engaged, he's a mate, he's a smart ass, he's, you know, that's Cam. And he's allowed to reconnect to those other areas of his life, even in the middle of a tournament, because he'll pick it up tomorrow morning when we get to the range again. But what people misinterpret is they see that somewhat Aussie larrikin sort of kid and think that that's just how he goes about his golf. He is one of the most dialed in, serious, switched on, engaged uh, athletes I work with. And I'm fortunate enough to work with a lot around the world in all different contexts. And he's, you know, literally some of the best I've ever seen in terms of his application and focus because he, he sort of, you know, has a bit of that white line fever when he's steps over the white line it's you know he, he switches it on i think he's very good at what i call simple brilliance simple brilliance which means what it means he he doesn't suffer fools so he only values things that he sees genuinely makes an impact on his game he doesn't go chasing shadows and just searching for things if the if if the swing's not quite where it is or he, he knows the things that work he knows the things he needs to do to improve that um, you know, the team around him is very small. It's literally, a, you know, very small team. Um, and that, that serves him well. I, I call it the margarita pizza, you know, three ingredients, yep. right? I'll drive across New York to go find an awesome wood-fired pizza and pay good money than the $5 pizza that's got all the ingredients yep. and the meat lovers, right? Well, I see a lot of golfers out there with meat lovers pizzas. Yep. They're just throwing too many ingredients on. Uh, and drowning it in sweet barbecue sauce and convincing themselves it's tasty. Whereas it's actually hard to cook a three-ingredient pizza. That tastes good. That tastes good because you've got to cook it just right and have the best ingredients. And that's sort of the philosophy I use with him, what Grant uses with him. We only add minimal input that makes an impact. I always say to players, you're trying to be a three Michelin star chef and you don't really know how to cook. I see so many players, Jonah, they're trying to get good at everything yeah and you know and i think a lot of this comes from i think one of the negative effects of the tiger era and, and what tiger did is this idea that you can be tiger woods that mm. you can have all the shots hank haney famous you've got to have 
all nine ball flights. And I see so many players going, no, I'm, I'm trying to work it both ways. I'm trying, And they're spending so much time and effort to try and get good at everything, but they're really average to mediocre and sometimes poor at all of it. They're not really great at anything. I So I always say, listen, just make great omelets. Great omelets have yeah. a couple of ingredients doesn't have make a great cheeseburger just a couple of ingredients and if you can make a thousand of those and every time someone eats them and says man that's a really good omelet can you make me another one yeah i can make you another omelet and then if you're the omelet maker in the, in the, in the restaurant eventually they're going to ask you to do something else because you're so good at making omelets yep. but if you can't make a three and i find it really fascinating that a lot of golfers that are trying to play when you actually talk to them about what they're trying to do. Like you said, they're just trying to throw as many ingredients into the mix as possible. Mm. And they don't know why they're doing that. They don't know what, from a chef, I always use chef analysis. They don't know what flavors actually work together. They throw all this stuff on and you're like, and that just tastes awful. Yeah, There's nothing cohesive about it. One of the things I thought that was really interesting that you said about Cam is his ability to reset. Mm-hmm. Talk me through that, and and is that something you've helped him with, or is that something that comes from him and comes from within? Yeah, the answer is both. He, firstly, he 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 was already very good when I joined the team, and he has a lot of the right you know, makeup. He, he he's a he's a gritty kid. He's he's grown up on a really um, challenging sort of. You know, not a perfect golf course. It was tough conditions. I you, talked to Grant about that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. the fact that it wasn't perfect. So many players, you know, we live in Jupiter, Florida, which yeah. is like yeah. ground zero for, for golfers. And there was a kid just graduated from high, from college, went to division one college, big program. And he doesn't really have a lot of money. And he was like saying, Hey, you know, the, the only club that I can get in and afford to join, they don't have pro V one X's on the range and I'm not going <laughs> to get any better yeah. unless I can be at a club where I've got pro V one X's. And I'm like, yeah. the fact that you're thinking like that yeah. is so far removed from what you actually need to do Correct. to actually make it. Yeah. Yeah. There's an expression that I've used a fair bit. It's not mine, but I love it. It's called, you know, it's hard to survive in the jungle if you're trained in the zoo. That's, you know, and- you said that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on and talk right. because that is so appropriate for so many players they Correct. think that the only way they can make it is in the zoo well environment. We, we do it as professionals right so just think for a moment if i say that again for the listeners it's hard to survive in the jungle if you're trained in the zoo so why do a lot of aussies make it in world sport we, we, we bat above our weight we're a tiny country 20 million people yet we seem to do okay in a and lot of sports around and as the world. we've all found out it takes a long way from everywhere else in the world to get Correct. down to us. Yeah. And now, now, why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is that we didn't necessarily have great resources. You know, our golf courses were, you know, bumpy greens and you'd hardly call them a fairway. You know, in cricket, the, you know, the conditions were tough. In football, we don't wear pads, you know. Um, and so naturally growing up in Australia, you have to it's a little bit like the jungle. So then when we go out onto the world stage, it's actually, it's almost easier in some degrees, right? We're getting a bit away from it. That's a whole other podcast about how I think in Australia, we're now becoming almost too professional and creating these lovely training environments that I see. But yeah, when I do travel the world and I see these youth academies and and coaches being so well-intentioned, they're trying to do the best thing for their athletes. They're trying to give them these beautiful facilities and beautiful training, you know, environments. But they're removing the very uh, 
competitive edge of being a, a ferocious, hungry lion. I mean, what does a lion look like in the jungle? Skinny, covered in scars, and hungry. So when that caribou walks past, it's bam, right? And will do anything literally, to eat. Literally. <laughs> Whereas we know the ones in the zoo that have had their mane all shampooed and conditioned and they're, you know, they're lying there sort of lazy and fat because another carcass gets thrown over the fence. So we've got to be really intentional with what we expose our athletes to. To the thinking about the ferociousness of that hungry lion, to extend the metaphor, it's not how hard something is. It's how important something is, you know? It's not how hard something is, it's how important something is. I, I, I use a lot of metaphor in, 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 in my therapy because that's how our brains learn. And I always use this one. I say, if, if I'm playing basketball in the street with my kids and a ball rolls onto the road and a car comes, I'll stand back and let the car hit the ball, I'll apologize and we'll get on playing basketball. But if my daughter runs out to get that ball as that car's coming, I'm out there, right? I don't care how painful, how many bones, I don't care if that car kills me because of how important my daughter is. So we've got to understand that if you want athletes to do hard things, you can't motivate them. It's their own journey. But you can help them connect to their importance, what it means to them. And when I help my clients connect to the meaning behind their career or whatever they're pursuing, they'll endure great hardship, which might mean taking on the water on the 18th, taking, you know, hitting this shot, doing the training, even though it's boring and monotonous, whatever. Like, it just doesn't matter what the challenge is. It's if there's something of importance at play, we're much more willing to make room for this, the, the discomfort, which is right back to what we spoke about earlier in terms of our relationship to pressure. You know, pressure can cause pain, psychological pain, discomfort. Well, if I, if I know my athlete is really connected to their why then they're willing to feel immense amount of discomfort. You know, Cam was so nervous on those final seven holes at the Open, he couldn't even swallow water. And it looked right. outwardly, right. you know, the old duck under the water paddling right. and stuff like right. that. Right. But he was connected to what he wanted to do. We knew he wasn't ever going to compromise on his course management because that's so important to how we go about our business. You know, I'm willing to lose a tournament, but I'm not going to compromise on being the best version of myself, how I play this golf course and staying true to that. But, but calm, confident, free of nerves and anxiety? Like, no, <laughs> he was, you know, he was human. He was normal. He was nervous as heck, but it didn't impact the way he went about his, his, his play. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. 
Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. You know, Brooks had a chance to win the Masters, and in talking to him, I mean, he was devastated. He really was, and um, I don't think he shows a lot of that outward. He, Brooks seems like he's an alpha. Mm -hmm. Those of us that know him privately know that he isn't necessarily an alpha, but it's advantageous in sports to have other people think you're an alpha. But he said that he felt very strange in that final round on Sunday that he felt something that he had never really felt before, and he sure, surely didn't feel the first three days, is he said that he felt for the first time on the golf course that he was trying to not hit a bad shot. Yeah. And I said, and he said, I just, I, and he was really, really upset and taken aback by that. And I said, you know what that shows is, it shows that you care. It shows that you want to win a green jacket and want to win a Masters and be able to go upstairs into the Champions. That tournament, I think more than any for golfers, is the holy grail because of everything that goes with it. And I think outwardly, Brooks and his persona is, I don't practice, nothing bothers me, I don't care. And I said, the great thing is, after everything that you've gone through to where you had this meteoric rise, you got to be number one in the world, you won all these majors, then you had the perfect storm of injury, whatever, and now you're rebuilding kind of Brooks 2.0, it should show you that you care. And that should be the catalyst that is the second phase of your career to start from there. Because I look at what he went through as, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd give anything to go back and be sitting there and watching him put on a green jacket. But I think the fact that he had to go through that, having had so much success, is actually important for the next stage of his career. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. I love hearing that. You know, firstly, you can be super alpha male and still be nervous. You can be super alpha male and still worry. You can be super alpha male and still have, you know, tournament nerves about closing out. So that's fine. Um, yeah, it just showed me that he worries about things he care about, cares about, which you identified. Our brain will always orientate to a threat before a positive stimulus. That's normal. Yeah. You know, you stand on a tee box, you'll see the water before you see your landing spot in the in the fairway. You you'll our brains if I put a thousand dollars cash on this table and a deadly spider, you know, your eyes will always do a rapid saccadic movement to the spider first before you look at the money. Our brains have evolved to always evaluate threat first. Now, we always have a healthy tension between hatred of losing and love of winning. They dance every single day in, in pro sport. 
right? And and most really really good athletes have a high hatred of losing. If we're going to be truly honest, they hate losing yeah. far more than they literally, like literally, literally, right? Tiger is the living literally, embodiment, literally. And 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 some days though, that just hijacks our focus and our attention more than it you know than the desired behavior so it's all of a sudden where we're focusing on the hazards we're focusing on the you know the, the the spots we don't want to have the ball and all of a sudden we start maybe deselling steering clubbing down whatever it is you know we, we get into that avoidance type play versus just playing our brand of golf and that's that's ultimately the work i try to do and when you said you know what have i done with cam i would say change his relationship to nerves and anxiety and pressure where he learned that's okay to feel that way and when just that alone meant that when those tournament nerves show up, he doesn't see it as an aversive thing or a problem. If I don't see it as a problem, then I don't need to turn to it and do something with it, right? Which then allows me to just keep playing my brand of golf, which means I don't change. So what does Cam do better than most people in the world? Not change. He stays consistent no matter the context. We know, I, I could turn on the te television, not see the score, you know, the score, and I'd be able to see the same course management, same shot, same approach, whether it's a practice round or at the final round of the, of the Open, right? And so hearing that story of, you know, of Brooks and it's about, yeah, how much did the course management change or the target selection change or even just the swing mechanics change based upon his relationship to what's happening internally? You know, there's, a, there's one term I will introduce for your listeners called metacognitive worry, okay? You don't need to remember it, but it's interesting, right? Metacognition. A cognition is a thought and, a, and what we attend to. So it's, you know, a metacognition is the judgment of that. I'll make it really simple. There's anxiety or worry, and then there's the worry that I'm worried, right? So you're a bit nervous before your first tee shot or something, and then you're walking up to the tee going, oh, no, oh, come on, calm down. Don't be, come on, don't be nervous. Come on. Come on. That chatter there is metacognition. It's the worry that you're nervous. Which means if you have somehow bought into a story that being nervous is a problem and you're now trying to get rid of those nerves, which you'll fail at, you've just set your metacognitions on fire. So that's what panic is in sport or, you know, losing focus or choking or whatever. It's not actually being nervous. It's trying to get rid of your nerves and failing and then freaking out that you're failing at doing something you deeply believe you need to change or you can't play golf. So for anybody listening today, it's learn this. You can play your best golf whilst being so nervous if you don't worry that you're nervous. Just let it be there. And if I just let it be there, it's like music in the background. Just let it be there and bring my attention back to the, the shot, the target, and commit to that swing then all of a sudden you change your story or your relationship to your nerves. A lot of my clients after time say, oh, Jonah, all this works great. I don't get nervous anymore. I say, oh, really? You still do. Tell me about that. <laughs> so how was your breakfast this morning? Oh, yeah, I didn't really want to eat my breakfast. Oh, and you sleep? Oh, yeah, it was a bit light. And how many times did you go to the toilet this morning? Yep, a few extra times. And, you know, all of a sudden they're like, oh, what I mean is I don't care that I get nervous anymore. I say, ah, isn't that freeing? Can you turn your brain off? We always say, I, I mean, I do that, and I'm sure it's all bullshit because I'm saying to players, I'll say that sometimes, but you'll have players that I work with or we all work with that you know that they're so in their own head. And I'll always say, listen, just try and turn your brain off today and just 
focus on hitting golf shots? Is it possible on the golf course and in sport to turn that constant chatter part of your brain off and perform and do great athletes and performers actually do that? Or yeah. is that just a made up bullshit phrase that you throw out? It's the second part of your advice that's actually what is the most important. You said, turn your brain off, bracket, you can't do that. That's neuroscientifically impossible. But you said, and focus on your golf shot. So what we want to do is we want to shift our attention. If I'm focusing on my thinking, so let's let's first start with why do we overthink in life and particularly in fine motor control sports like golf where you've got lots of time between shots, right? Is that the, the benefit of having this evolved frontal lobe is we're really good at thinking, planning, you know, time traveling to what's next in the future. And it's serving us so well. We're building rockets and sending them to Mars. Like, it's just this, you know, we're eating lots of protein. Our, our frontal lobe's growing. We're getting smarter and smarter, but we're also getting really good at worrying and thinking and analyzing and ruminating and all this stuff, right? So what we have to learn to do is be really intentional with our thinking and focus. So it's about shifting to something of importance. Now, if I can learn that I can't actually think this golf ball into the air, I can't, I, I can't think a low golf score, right? It's by what I do with my hands and my feet and this right. club face. So therefore, let go of my attempts to think the golf course, you know, rather what do I need to do here? Back to those behaviors, right? So for me, yep, I'm getting caught up in, in overthinking and trying to solve the future through why? Because I'm anxious and I don't want to fail and I want to succeed. Make room for that and come back to the here and now about my behavioral executions. You know, so I always say it's three, th three things. It's not about reducing stress and pressure. It's about building capacity to embrace more. Physical trainers got this a long time ago, right? Physiotherapists and, and sports trainers got this way before psychology. What happened when in, with a football player when they tear a calf, you know, 25 years ago, certainly in Australia, you'd come off the field, they'd put an ice pack on it. Rub some dirt on it, yeah. get back out there. Well, they'd rest you, right? That's how you, let's just rest you for a few weeks. And you'd get better and you'd run back out there and a few weeks later, you'd tear it again. They say, oh, we didn't rest you long enough. So they'd make you rest for six weeks. And then you'd go out and tear your calf again and you'd have a terrible season. And re more recently, thankfully, due to good sports science, they went, the reason you're tearing your calf is your calves aren't strong enough. So within two weeks of doing a calf tear, you're in the gym now doing weights because right. they're saying if you want to be a football player, your calf needs to be able, needs to be able to handle the load of football. And right now your calves can't handle the load of football. Well, psychologically, it's the same. We need to build our athletes up so they can handle the load of professional golf. Not calm down, deep breathe, go to a happy place, be more calm and confident. What? They're playing for millions of dollars in front of the world, doing something that's really hard against a bunch of other guys who are really good. You've got to actually build your capacity for embracing more. So I always use a, a metaphor of like a, a, a cup and a jug. And I say, if this cup's you and the water as I'm pouring into the cup is your stress, and as it's going up, you know, you, you're on the cut line. Oh, you made it. You then shot really low. You're in the final group. Oh, they're, they're doing COVID swabs. You might get ruled out with COVID. Your dog just died, you know. Jonah, I'm about to overflow. I need to calm down. I'm stressed out. I say, how about don't be the cup? How about you be the pitcher? Be the jug. 
pour the water back in the jug and look there's a whole bunch of room for more humans can do so much more than we give credit it's just we get so focused on wanting to reduce our stress and pressure so we've got to build our capacity to embrace more second one it's not about positive thinking it's about taking positive action no matter what you think we're obsessed with positive thinking the ball doesn't give a shit what you're thinking doesn't know so it's not about reducing stress and pressure it's about embracing the capacity for more it's not about positive thinking it's about taking positive action no matter what you feel and it's not how hard something is it's how important something is and so when i work with athletes it's okay jonah i'm hiring you because i'm getting too nervous i get too negative i get too angry i get too stressed out i say well you've come to the wrong guy I'm not going to get rid of any of that because you're human. Because you can't. I'm going to increase your ability for sitting with that and not changing club head speed or deselling or, you know, leaving putts short. Let's make sure we're behaviorally consistent. One of the things I think people struggle with is the time part of golf. There's so much time. I mean, if you think about it, 72, I mean, if you shoot even par, we really need you to be focusing for very short bursts of time, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not, and, 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 and the reason why I wanted to bring this up is I thought we were talking about your work with race car drivers and stuff. And I found it fascinating that you said that there are points during, you know, Formula One as an example, there's so much that goes into every corner they're constantly having to change the core. There's the forces on their body. There's the engineers in their ears. And you said that, in the long straights where the car is going the fastest yeah. is where you have the reset for the driver slash athlete and you say to the engineers that's his time whether that's 5 10 15 seconds whatever it is that's the reset you told me that you've got drivers doing relaxing their shoulders taking a drip of water stretching the neck out when the car is going the fastest when it is arguably the most dangerous, that's the reset. Mm -hmm. That resonated with me because I'm thinking golfers have so much time in the course of a competitive round of golf in between shots. What are some tools, obviously they're general, generalization and generic, but what are some things that golfers can be doing, specifically competitive golfers in between shots to help them I mean, I remember Brooks when he won his first U.S. Open. He had a shot at Aaron Hills. It was on the back nine. It was a really difficult shot. He was right in the mix. I think he was like tied for the lead. It was a back right pin. And the announcers are saying this is really, really dangerous because he misses this way. And he hit a really, really great shot. And he and Ricky walking up to it were in a pretty big conversation. And we flew when we were flying out the, the, later that night, I said, where were you guys talking about? And he was like, we were actually talking about where we were going to stay in Thailand and we were planning a trip to go to Thailand. And I'm thinking, where the hell's that coming from, right? But to me, that's an example of taking pressure off by taking yourself out of the situation you're in. Yeah, sure. So love that you recognize that you know the worst thing golfers do is they try to stay switched on for the round of golf and then they'll just run out of petrol right run out of fuel <laughs> because mentally the literally, bandwidth literally, just gets literally and and i see that you know in early careers where people will hit a shot they're tracking it they're watching it they see where it lands and they're just 
thinking about either the next shot or whatever it is or the previous shot, the swing mechanics, the ball flight. They're just not giving their brain a chance to just decompress and switch off. So, yeah, definitely one trick is to know that once you've hit that shot and you've seen where it, you know, where it lands, it's let's solve that puzzle when we get to it. And it's a new puzzle, right? Correct. Every shot Correct. that you have is not part of a puzzle. No. Every part of every shot you're going to have is another puzzle that you've got to solve. And Correct. Because I, I, I do that when I play, you know, but I have so much thoughts in my head. I have so much information yeah. that I go out and I play golf and, and if one thing doesn't work, I'm trying another technique. So every shot you hit is its own individual yeah. puzzle that you're trying to solve. So I always say, I, I, I like, you know, depending on the distance of the hole, but it's like, okay, you're going to think about that tee shot because you've just hit it. So tune into that tee shot. If there's something of, of meaning to actually learn from it. So hit the tee shot. You might take, give yourself, you know, 30 yards to actually think a bit about what you're doing and was that relevant to what you and your coach have been working on. You're allowed to have some swing thoughts and review what you just did. Then it's literally glove off. When that glove comes off metaphorically or physically, it's now let's talk about the trip to Thailand, the restaurant, the, the, the you know, the, the latest video movie you've seen, whatever, right? So, so, you know, be, courageous enough and i use that word courageous enough to switch off our anxious brain doesn't want to stop thinking think back to when you're in high school or college and you hadn't studied for that exam if you you know like a lot of people and you're doing that cram session right you're sitting at the front of the lecture hall about to go in and what you're doing is you're just looping it in your head because you know you're not prepared right and so you don't want to forget it so you're having to keep looping, keep looping, keep looping through your anxiety. So that's what we do when we're on the golf course. If we're anxious, we think that if I switch off, I'm going to disconnect from my my golf swing. Right. I'm going to, you know, and it's just a lie. It's just anxiety talking, right? It's trying to trap you. So it takes courage to actually say, walk off the tee box, glove off, and now let's talk a bit about the Netflix series I've been watching or what have you and allow myself to disconnect from whatever and then okay now we're you know 40 yards out hey let's talk a bit about the wind let's talk a bit about what you're switching back on as you're getting into the ball and solving the puzzle so now the other one is learning to reset and connect to something in the present right which is what i loved you said that you feel like cam does so well yeah well he just does whatever yeah he does he does he does do it well now there's some um simple low-hanging fruit right like it's mindfulness is just about bringing your attention into the present and being connected to whatever that is. So it's not about calming down. It's about being in the present. There's a big difference. People think calming down, take breathe in, breathe out, calm down, get rid of the nerves. If I'm breathing in and trying to get rid of my nerves, what am I then saying about nerves? I'm saying they're bad. I'm saying I need to get rid of them, which will work as I walk off the tee box but then in, when, I, when there's three holes to play and I'm doing that breath work and I can't get rid of the nerves, what now happens to my focus? I'm trying to get rid of them. I'm trying to get rid of them. I'm trying to get rid of them. Now I'm having that metacognitive worry. I've lost my focus. So really big little hack for golfers out there. Don't try to breathe away your nerves because you're feeding a story that nerves are bad. Rather, breathe to pay attention. So you might breathe in for four seconds, hold for seven seconds, breathe out for eight. It's a really hard breath to do as you're walking. In two, three, four, hold for seven, out for eight. So why do I give somebody a really hard breath cycle to do? It hijacks their attention. That's hard. It's hard. It's a task. They don't have to succeed. Yeah. They can be, God damn, Jonah, that was really, I couldn't, 
hey, so what were you doing for three or four breath cycles? I was just getting annoyed at you because I was, and then I was focusing on the breath even more because I really wanted to do it. And okay, what weren't you thinking about? Golf. Oh, the fact that I pushed that shot a little bit. And the, uh, right. Okay. So, you know, have a sip of your drink bottle, but don't just drink water. Feel the cold water go down your throat until you lose where it's gone to. Have another sip and see if you can track it a bit further. They're just little simple hacks of bringing your attention to something else, which, yeah, my my, my dr- drivers will do that in a race car. Uh, it's more like 1.4 seconds is all they got down the back straight when they're doing 370k kilometers an hour. But, <laughs> Seems longer. But, you know, that is their time just to disconnect and just be, be, be in the present before they go into Apex One. But, you know, golf gives you plenty of time for that. So instead of going, oh, golf's so hard because you can get really caught up in overthinking, well, only if you choose to, you can also choose to have some really great conversations with your caddy or your golf partners and or daydream and fantasize about something cool that you're interested in, right? Like you can be choiceful the way you bring your attention to it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. We saw um, my dad was working with Greg Norman when he had the epic collapse at the at, at the Masters, um, and it Greg was always big into visualization, mm-hmm. and I think that was something that was a massive strength for Greg. You would track his eyes the way you would see it, and he didn't. He always said that he didn't he didn't pull the trigger until until he had visualized the shot. Mm-hmm. And you talking about that on Sunday that day when everything was unraveling, he was taking massive amount of time and afterwards he told my dad i couldn't see the shot i kept going to visualizing what the shot was which had served him well so long and so many times in his career and he just was standing there kind of hitting control alt reset delete he couldn't see a shot and that goes to what you said you're trying to 
breathe it away Correct. and you're actually making it worse. Correct. Yeah. So we know that visualization is very good for motor learning. It's not good for recreating performance states because it never matches reality. So, you know, lots of countries have tried it. You know, the Chinese tried it at the Olympics and others have tried to recreate. What we learn is if we do visualization to make it really, really sensory and real it never matches reality and then you have that juxtaposition of oh hang on this isn't what i'd prepared for whereas if you're just doing a swing thought and visualizing it that is really good for motor development so visualization visualization is great for connecting to swing patterns and embedding motor learning it's not good for recreating what it's like to walk down the final fairway at the masters or something because you won't ever and you don't need to you don't need to recreate that um but yeah if, if i'm getting tangled in my nerves and I don't like them, and I'm trying to get rid of them, and I'm failing at getting rid of them, then you won't be able to visualize because your prefrontal frontal cortex is completely hijacked by all that metacognitive worry. Yeah. Lastly, uh, one of the metaphors and one of the cliches of golf is the longest walk in golf is from the driving range to the first tee. What do you see as the disconnect between what players are doing in practice, which they can perform in practice. Mm -hmm. And then the shift and the change, because I have so many players say, listen, my range sessions are great. I hit it great on the range. Um, and then when I go play, it feels like something. I have my own thoughts and bit, but I'd love to get your input on what you think is the difference and how players can access what they do in practice on the golf course when the game is being played. Yeah, sure. Two things to, to that question. One is we know that, yeah, that, that, that term, the walk from the driving range to the first tee, that's more about anticipatory anxiety. So we know that the, 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 the spiciest or most challenging anxiety is the anticipatory anxiety. And once you actually start playing, it normally abates a little bit, right? Um, so that's just that, you know, the buildup of, of, of uncertainty of how we're going to play. But to your question really around the transference, it's... I see. I had never heard that term, by the way, until Dr. Greg Rose from TPI. We were talking about a player that was great on the range stuff, and he's like, "It's not a technique issue; it's a transfer problem. Yep, You're yep. trying to transfer what." There was a girl I taught, um, a junior. She played a practice round, a big tournament down in Florida. Um, you know, decent player, and she shot, you know, one two over in the in the practice round, and then in the tournament shot almost 90 and yep. the parent said she needs more practice i'm like if she needed more practice she shoot 90 in the practice round. correct correct so what do i see as a you know like you said as an external person i mean i've worked in pro golf for 18 years but i'm still not a golf person i'm a, I'm a sports psychologist generalist there is that when a lot of my clients early on are, are on the range i see them very internally focused and even their coach might even be promoting that inadvertently so swing thoughts and cueing and using you know aids and all those things, which are very good at the right time, but they're they're they're, they're still taking your client to an intrinsic place of focus, and then they walk onto the golf course and where do they focus? Out there, they're seeing a narrow target, they're seeing a flight, a shape, they're, they're and they're seeing all the problems, and they're seeing threat, 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 you know, and they're not you know, where they were on the range. So do I think we need to, we, well, you need to align it. 
Some people are going to be more intrinsic golfers. We know that. Some people are very extrinsic, and that's and both can be very, very good. So there's no real right or wrong per se, but typically in the game of golf, you've still got to be out there solving that problem. So I think it's more about actually how we do train on the range and making sure it's matching golf. Otherwise, I see quite a difference between the two. Like when I see a bucket of balls, I, I, I say, no, there's 60 shots in there. Don't see that as 60 balls. There's 60 shots. And let's make sure every single every single one of those balls is a shot. Therefore, it must have a target. It must have a flight. You know, must have intent on correct, what you're trying to correct. do. Correct. And therefore, my swing thought needs to reflect hitting that shot, which then means when I then walk onto the first tee, I'm replicating the same cognitive sort of systems and processes in terms of what am I focusing on and what am I thinking of. So that's the word cognition. Cognition means what am I focusing on and what am I thinking? And my job is to make sure that it's relatively aligned. Now, there's a time and a place to go really intrinsic and get some technical work done. But then it's like, now let's bring the golfer back out into normality of what they have to do on the golf course. And I always say to players, I think so much of golf, people think they can practice away all the issues. Yeah. And I always say to players, listen, it's a game. That's why they give you a scorecard and they tell you what the rules of the game are. It's not gymnastics, it's not figure skating. It's not dressage to where there is a, a, a sequence of motions and you get extra points for trying something, you know, figure skating. It's all subjective. Golf isn't subjective, yeah. right? And I think we practice it as if it's set in stone, that it is repetition and golf is 100% random, mm. right? The entire sport is random, but people practice it in a way I think that is, is it's almost backwards. It kills me, it kills me, which is back to that metaphor. You know, how can you survive in the jungle if you're trained in the zoo? And I look and I see a whole bunch of people sitting on firstly flat ground, yep. perfect tea box grass, Wanting perfect tee box and Brock's grass, and then I, then I look at the statistics and I say, I wonder how many shots today Cam's going to have where the ball is in a neutral position, you know, on a flat fairway, with perfect grain in like. And I mean, I know, and I mean that seriously. Like, actually, reverse engineer how many shots of golf is the ball and you on flat level ground. Firstly, like I don't know, you're the golf expert, not me, but I assume there wouldn't be many. Like, I don't know, like it's only a handful, right? Normally there's some slope, side slope, down slope, up slope, you know, fairways and reg. Even if they're really good, they're still going to have a fair few out of the rough. Like, and yet I look at the how many reps reflect that. Now, as an outsider looking at that sport, I go, every other sport in the world generally trains for the reality of tournament play. Golf does it pretty poorly. Yeah, I mean, I always think as instructors, historically, we teach putting backwards. We teach technique first, right? And it's all technique from three to five feet. Right. And you do kind of some cursory long putts to get the speed of the greens, all those bullshit cliches. Yeah. And the last one, get the speed of the greens. Most people will go out and have 33 putts. Yeah. They'll putt poorly. They'll three putt a lot yeah. from long distance. And what do they do? They immediately go back to stroke mechanics from three feet. Yeah. Whereas they don't. I've actually started with with beginning golfers and 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 not super great putters. Hey, let's putt thirty footers, twenty five footers, forty footers, and work backwards. Start there, then work the mechanics. And if you're 
missing the ball from 30 feet and the ball's going, you're aiming at a target and you're slicing it with a putter because you have no face control or no ability to control the strike. Yeah, then we get over and we work on some basic stroke mechanics. So I do a lot of putting work. Cam and I focus intimately on speed, only on speed, basically. Ben Crenshaw told me once, if your putts always have the right speed, how far away from the hole is the ball ever really going to be? And I love what you said. I'm huge on, on waking the brain up with long lag putts. Give it long distance so you and be wrong. That's okay. That's waking your brain up to the speed of the green. But if you're hitting a three-footer, two things go wrong. One is if you're putting at a hole, what happens with most of those three-foot putts? They go in, right? But you can hit that with easily a 30 to 40% variance in speed, but your brain isn't picking up on that. It's just seeing it go it's in, seeing it from, go short in from short distance. So you think you're putting well, and I'm watching and going, oh my goodness, you're putting horrendously because you haven't w- woken up your speed yet. And then they go come off around and go, oh, my speed was really off today. And I'm like, I saw your warm-up putting routine and you didn't actually register speed. So yeah, elongate long putts, lag putts, do all that, get your speed tuned in. Then if path needs sorting, all that stuff, and then do your shorter stuff because then you should be seeing it going, I actually like discs and things because it, it tells you, you, you know, you blast it through that disc on the green and you, oh, wow, I have, I have hit that too far. So I'm very cautious of golfers using short putts at holes early on in their warm-up because I think you can trick your brain. Jonah, fantastic. I mean, I've done a lot of podcasts, um, you know, over the last two years and, and I've got to say that this is probably one that I've enjoyed the most, just getting to pick your brain. And, um, you know, I had, I had Grant on the podcast recently and, and, and you can see the way that he thinks about the work that you guys do with Cam is very similar to the way you talk. So um, hopefully uh, we're going to be, I mean, I know we are next year going to be back down in Australia and I 100% will get you back on. Thank you so, so much for talking to me. Thanks for your time, mate. Appreciate it. So that was Jonah Oliver, and um, he is definitely someone whose brain I'm going to pick every chance I get an opportunity because um, I got a lot out of that, and hopefully you did as well because he has some fantastic stuff, and I I don't think it's um, a shock as to why um, the work he and Grant Field have done with Cam Smith um, have turned him into one of the best players in the game of golf today. It is major championship week. The PGA, Oak Hill Country Club. Um, it's a cool place for me to come back to you every year. My uncle was the head pro, my uncle Craig. He was the head pro here for over 40 years. Um, and I think the first time I came here, I want to say it was the 89 US Open that Curtis Strange won. He won back-to-back US Opens. In 88, he won uh, at the Country Club and then came to Oak Hill and won his second U.S. Open. Uh, this is a big, big boy golf course. Um, it is a hard golf course. Uh, it, it, it's a major championship golf course. The rough is up. Uh, they've done a redesign of the golf course. But there are just, you cannot fake it around here. You have to stand up. You have to hit good golf shots. Uh, if the wind blows uh, for four days, nobody's going to break par. That's how hard this golf course is. Uh, so I think a lot of uh, the winning score will be dependent on the weather. The rough is is brutal. You have to drive the golf ball in play. Um, and and I think if, if, if you win here on Sunday and you lift that big giant trophy up, 
you're going to have played some fantastic golf because there's just no way to fake it around Oak Hill. It's iconic. Um, it's one of the major championship golf courses. There've been US Opens here. There've been PGAs here. There've been um, USAMs here. There've been Ryder Cups here. So uh, you will get this week what everyone expects from a major championship. It's hard. It will be a true test, and um, I think we are going to get a fantastic winner. I'm looking forward to it. Second major of the year. Um, let's get it going. Son of a Butch comes to you every Wednesday. I want to thank everyone for listening. Rate, review, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. Take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.